This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by HSI. This episode was recorded March 16th, 2021. My name is Jill James, HSI's Chief Safety Officer. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Mark Catlin. Mark is a consulting industrial hygienist from Maryland. Many, many of us regard Mark as our health and safety historian. Many of us have used, enjoyed, and taught using the historical health and safety films he's curated on his YouTube channel, which you can find at Mark D. Catlin. Today is also Mark's third time as a guest on the podcast. You can hear our conversations on episodes 11, 60, and now today. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you so much, Jill. It's wonderful to be back. Hmm. Well, I asked you here for a very specific reason, and the reason is because OSHA is talking about issuing something called an emergency temporary standard, and that isn't new to OSHA. It's also called an ETS, referred to as an ETS, and I know you've done some um, some research for us on ETSs and what they mean in the context of OSHA, but before we get to that, I think maybe we should tell our audience kind of why we're ramping up to an ETS and what's been happening at OSHA since um, January 21st. So does that sound okay? Should we start there? Sure. Great. Lots, okay. of ha lots happening these days. Yeah, lots happening. So maybe we can just kind of bounce back and forth about what we've been reading and know about some of these things. So maybe I'll start and then we can just kind of go back and forth if that's okay with you. Okay, so on um, January 21st, uh, the first full day of the Biden administration, President Biden signed an executive order, and it was called Executive Order on Protecting Worker Safety and Health. And in that executive order, it outlined a number of actions the Biden administration expected OSHA to take, and then they associated some dates with some of those things as well. And so, um, Mark, do you maybe want to start out with the first thing they asked them to do? Sure. The, the first thing was, was, well, two things. One is the first thing was they, they OSHA was, was required to review their current guidance on COVID and, and, and update and modify that. And OSHA, OSHA also uh, had new leadership installed, the political leadership at, at, right. uh, at OSHA installed. So those, those were the first two things happening. OSHA finished the uh, revision of their COVID guidance uh, earlier than the than the executive order had the deadline for. They, they beat it by a couple of days, which was really amazing. Yeah, they did. So if anybody's paying attention, it was issued on um, January 29th, and it's it's featured front and center of the OSHA um, homepage, and it's called um, Guidance on Mitigating and Preventing the Spread of COVID-19 in the Workplace. Right. Now that's that's simply guidance, and it, you know if, if OSHA determines that an ETS is needed, and then put the and put and puts out the ETS, then that will become re mandatory requirements. Right, and there's there's actually if anybody has been paying attention to that guidance document, it's it's quite lengthy, and it goes over you know a number of things that they're expecting of employers under uh, guidance, not law yet. Um, but things like having a written prevention program and conducting hazard assessments and having specific policies on 
isolating and quarantining and um, screening employee health and recording um, work-related um, COVID-19 illness or death on the OSHA 300 log, which is also something that's new. Um, offering vaccinations and then reminding employers to comply with um, regulations that they that are that are standing right now on personal protective equipment and respiratory protection and sanitation, bloodborne pathogens, and medical records. Right. So that yeah, so that right. happened that happened back in January, which now seems like a long time ago. Right. And 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 just to, just an addition there. So so those are federal OSHA guidance. If if uh, if. Uh, for folks living in Virginia, Oregon, and California, there are there are state OSHA uh, ETSs that have already been promulgated, and in California they've had a, a, a aerosol transmittable disease standard uh, that's actually been in effect for more than a decade that's applied to COVID since the beginning. So, uh, yeah. so in some ways the feds are catching up to what some of the other states are doing. Yeah, right. And so as a as a reminder for for people. Um, you know, federal OSHA says you have to be as good or better than if you're a state-run OSHA program. So as good or better than the federal government. So those right, states right. that Mark just outlined um, uh, have have decided to promulgate their own emergency temporary standards, and those are in state plan OSHA states. Right. And those have been in place, Mark, for some of them since like the summer, right? Uh, I think I think Virginia was the first, and and theirs came out in the fall and applied to most most work sites, and then uh, yeah. Oregon and Oregon, and then California, which passed their kind of a uh, an ETS for everybody else that weren't that weren't already covered by the aerosol transmittable disease standard that's been around. So mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so back to um, pre the president's executive order, the second and third things um, that the president had asked took place. OSHA made some movement last Friday, March um, 12th. So one of those was to launch a national emphasis program. And then along with that was to update their enforcement guidance um, for investigators on um, coronavirus as well. So, Mark, do you want to talk about maybe what a national emphasis program is? Yeah, it, it's a it's a policy. It's an internal policy matter. So OSHA does inspections, uh, you know, for a number of reasons. Complaints is a is a primary one, but they also do uh, programs inspections. And so what a national yeah. emphasis uh policy is it's a it's a sort of uh, it's an it's a targeted inspection program where OSHA focuses on specific hazards and in specific industries mm -hmm. so in this case it's it's uh, it's aimed at uh, industries that are considered to be at high risk for COVID uh, concerns and mm -hmm. it's specific to COVID yeah. and and so the target industries are uh, are um, um, health care and long-term care are, are sort of two of the target uh, two of the target industries, so that that covers a lot: offices for for healthcare, uh, ambulance services, hospitals. Um, right. But then it also covered. But the other industries that are covered include ones that you wouldn't be surprised by, so meat processing, meat and poultry processing, supermarkets and groceries, uh, right. warehousing and storage, and then others. So, and you can go on the OSHA website and you can get a, you can get the uh, NEP, it's called, and you can see the details that are in there. Yeah, exactly. So if you're if you're listening and you're like, okay, so now I'm on the OSHA website and I found the guidance document called the you know the National Emphasis Program on uh, Coronavirus, and you're like, 
holy cow, this thing is 25 plus pages long. If you scroll to Appendix A and B, you'll see the targeted industries that Mark is talking about there. Uh, but national emphasis programs aren't something new for OSHA. Um, in fact, it is one of the reasons for inspections, like Mark was talking about. Um, and there's currently 10 of them in place. Yeah. Um, and so some, if if people aren't familiar with them, we have, we have one on combustible dust. There's one on hexavalent chromium exposure, process safety management. I won't list all 10 of them, but like trenching and excavations. Um, and when I was an OSHA investigator, the trenching and excavation um, national emphasis program was in place as it continues to be right now, which meant um, whenever I was out and about doing my work as an investigator, um, if I happened upon a trench or an excavation, it was my duty to stop and to conduct an inspection because the rates of fatalities and injuries from collapses is so high. Right. Um, yeah, and so the, the intentionality behind these um, national emphasis programs is really to find uh, another lever for OSHA to use to curb um, injury and illness and death, um, and that's how it's being applied in this particular case. Right, right. So it, it's a, you know, that, that targeting of, of OSHA resources, because OSHA has such limited inspection resources, so that targeting becomes really important, and I think that's, you know, that's a prime use of this. It doesn't mean that that if you're an employer in the covered sector for the uh, NEP, that you're going to be inspected by a programmed inspection, but you're more likely. And so yeah. so there's a, a greater um, possibility. But it also, you're also still, you know, complaints could still come in uh, to a work site from a complaint by an employee or their union, or mm -hmm. there could be a, you know, there could be a fatality or serious injuries that would trigger a, or, you know, or other ways that, that, a, that an investigation might be triggered. So this is just one one way to kind of more focus OSHA's resources and attention. Right, exactly, exactly. And then at this at the same time, on March twelfth, um, OSHA updated their um, their policy for enforcement uh, when when they find issues with with uh, with coronavirus and prevention strategies that employers need to be doing. Their investigators need to know what to do. It's like, okay, now I found something. How do I handle it? What do I do? And so, again, that's an internal policy to say, you know, here are regulations that you can cite. This is how you would apply the general duty clause. Here are the things you should look for in terms of um, policies that you should be asking the employer for, things that you should be paying attention to on your inspection. And then it also explains how the investigators are to are to take care of themselves and protect themselves um, from transmission of the illness as well when they're going about conducting conducting their work. Right. And that's a really important issue when inspectors go out that, that they're yeah. and I it's I and I think it be, can be useful for employers and, and folks involved in safety and health to, to go on the OSHA website and sort of look at the look at the enforcement guidance and sort of see what the inspector is is going to be doing under the NEP because that gives you a good idea of what you need to to double check on and audit your own program so that you'll be prepared if you get exactly yeah. exactly and much of and much of what you'll find um, in in the NEP and in the um, enforcement policy are those guidelines and so they're looking you know that first document that they just updated that they have front and center on their website are are the items that investigators will be asking about according to what's listed in uh, those two directives yeah. now now yeah. I think uh, that 
regarding state plan states, I think that uh, there it's not mandatory that the NEP apply to state plan, plan states. And um, in right. this case, it's optional, but the states have to respond back to federal OSHA to, to say what their plans are. And if they're going to if they're going to follow the NEP, then they need to provide you know their what they're going to do in their own state program. Exactly. I think they have 60 days to respond to the federal government to say, right. hey, we're in, we're in or we're out or we came up with our own thing. Right, right. So again, yeah. it's, you know, your, your, you know, your comment a few minutes ago about, you know, state plans need, need to meet or exceed federal requirements. Right, right. So then that leads us to one of the other items in the executive order, which was the president asking OSHA to consider issuing something called an emergency temporary standard or an ETS. Right. So that brings us, um, <laughs> Mark, to the reason that I asked you here today. So, yeah, give us, give us, take us, take us to school. What is an well, ETS? And yeah, well, the, the the ETS is a is a rarely is is in more recent years a rarely used power that OSHA has under the 1970 OSHA Act that was passed 50 years ago, and so. The the ETS is, allows OSHA to to temporarily um, promulgate a, uh, a, a an enforceable standard without going through the normal rulemaking process of public hearings and consideration and all that, and mm -hmm. and they don't have to supply a public notice or or take public comment, and the um, you know the purpose is to allow OSHA to have the ability to respond to to new and, and to new uh, hazards or new information about old hazards that require a quick response to begin to protect uh, workers. And, uh, and so the ETS uh, is, is permitted. The ETS allows OSHA to, to have an ETS for, um, to issue an ETS under these criteria, and then they have, uh, under the law, six months to then issue a permanent standard. So while mm. the ETS is in effect, OSHA is supposed to then be working on developing a, a permanent standard to address that issue. And in that case, there are public hearings and, you know, and the sort of the nor more normal process, but it need, it's going to have to be accelerated. Right, right. So uh, what, 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 what kind of ETSs have there been in the past, Mark? Well, it's, when I look at, at the history, and there's actually a really good history of, of ETSs that was put out by the Congressional Research Service um, in uh, June of 2020, so I'd urge people to go to the Congressional Research, Serv Research Service and, and look for this. It's called the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration OSHA Emergency Temporary Standards in COVID-19, so it's pretty mm -hmm. timely. And so there's sort of two, um, there's sort of, I sort of look at this as having sort of two, two timelines for the ETS. The ETS in the 1970s, OSHA, OSHA used it quite frequently. And had and had some success with it um, to protect workers in the in the 1980s. Uh, OSHA attempted to use it in 1983 uh, to update the asbestos standard, and it was overturned in court. And OSHA has has not used it ever since. And oh in, wow! And in part because uh, you know the the uh, in part because of some of the issues in the court ruling, and in part because OSHA uh, OSHA and and its supporters have used other methods to get regulations passed, often uh, having regulations passed by uh, by making it a congressional uh, congressional mandate, putting it in a law, like the Hazwopper mm -hmm. Standard, Process Safety Management, the Lead and Construction Standard, and, other, and others. Hmm. Uh, so, wow, fast. Yeah. So, 
during the during the 1970s, though the 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 ETS um, the ETS power was used by OSHA in in a number of uh, circumstances. The the one that comes to my mind is is in 1974 um, for the vinyl chloride industry within the uh, sort of chemical industry. There there mm-hmm. were a series of reports that came out of the in, that came out of the industry that. Workers that there were workers discovered with a rare liver disease called angiosarcoma, and mm-hmm. so uh, and it was pretty quickly that was tied to working in a vinyl chloride plant and exposure to vinyl chloride. So OSHA mm-hmm. actually then issued an emergency temporary standard, and then followed that up um, uh, with a permanent which well, permanent standard which is still on the books. And mm-hmm. so that's that in in my looking back at history that seems like the best one of the best examples of OSHA. Responding to not a, a, a new hazard, but a new information about the in, in new dangers of, a, of, of an old hazard, and then responding to protect workers. And it did that. It, it both protected workers. I, there are very few cases of angiosarcoma after that. Um, and, and also the industry was able to comply with the new standard uh, pretty quickly. And mm-hmm. and there has been some economic research showing that the industry actually benefited from the standard by by decreasing emissions and and making their their process more efficient. And actually, they ended up making more money and hiring more people following the standard, which is not <laughs> and, what you normally think about an OSHA standard. Right. Exactly. But you know, I mean, in this in this regard as well, I mean, if if an emergency temporary standard is issued um, on 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 COVID nineteen. I would think that there would be at least, well, those of us who are practicing health and safety <laughs> professionals to say, oh my gosh, thank you, finally a roadmap, right? Right. I mean, because everybody's been sort of, you know, it's been a bit of the Wild West in the last year trying to keep up with science. I mean, because it's, 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 it's a new hazard. We're all trying to figure it out. And, you know, try, you know people are trying their best in many cases. And of course, some that aren't. Right. But right. for those of us in in this professional practice, it's like, oh my gosh, please, something for us to follow, right? Yeah, and As, I and I think okay. you know OSHA standards often, I think, often play that role. You know, their OSHA standards are minimum requirements that have to be followed for a specific hazard. But you know, many employers often go beyond the OSHA standards. But at least you have a roadmap, as you said, and you have a you right. have a floor, not a ceiling. And mm-hmm. and I've seen that over the years. I've been involved a lot with the Cal OSHA ATD standard that, that applies mostly to healthcare and public safety, and that's been a I think a good a good regulation because it shows a good roadmap with with a decade of experience on how to deal with infectious disease that are airborne and droplet spread in healthcare. And so mm-hmm. I've often been advocating that healthcare employers outside of California should should at least be familiar with the ATD standard and and take the experience there to heart to build your own program. Right, right. And and so as OSHA is considering this um, ETS, yeah. it's it's not like they're necessarily doing it in their own silo. There are other um, oh, agencies, um, think tanks, scientific groups that are urging OSHA and the CDC along, like saying, Hey, I think you should. If you're going to do this, I think you should include X, Y, and Z. Is that what you've been paying attention to as well, Mark? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. OSHA is certainly not doing this in a in a vacuum without without sort of knowing what's currently happening in terms of COVID and the occupational safety and health 
uh, science and experience. So certainly, certainly the the CDC guidance is going to play a, a powerful role in what in what uh, OSHA is going to come up with. And and uh, but but I know a lot of folks are are you know are certainly sending information to OSHA even though it's not a public comment period, but sending information to OSHA with suggestions and ideas. And OSHA is not starting from scratch. Actually, OSHA, after H1N1 and after the ATD standard was passed in California, OSHA actually initiated um, rulemaking on an infectious disease standard to cover airborne and droplet spread diseases like California had done. And because mm-hmm. of the H1N1 experience, they, there were a lot of holes in, in, you know, in the, in the you know, lack of that regulation at the federal level. So OSHA has been, it's, it's been, uh, that, that regulation sort of been suspended in the last four years or so in, in the last administration in terms of moving forward. But OSHA has, you know, has many years of experience looking at infectious disease issues and how they might be regulated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're building yeah. on that to create, I, I imagine they're building on that as they pull this ETS together. Yeah. So if, as as you as you and I get our crystal balls out, right, <laughs> and try to figure out um, what they may put in this ETS, that that's one of them, right? I mean, to start maybe with with that framework that they already had started with H1N1 and what California has with the aerosol. It, the ATD stands for aerosol trans transmissible diseases. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 yeah, and 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 certainly, I, I think the you know part of what OSHA has to do for the ETS legally is they have to show that there's a hazard uh, that meets the requirement of an ETS. So, um, so for example, when OSHA tried to issue the ETS in uh, in the early '80s, and and the courts over they were sued and the courts overruled that. You know, my my memory of that is in part the court said, you know, not that asbestos at the time wasn't dangerous and needed maybe a better regulation, but it wasn't something that was an emergency that just showed up as a new hazard. It had been an existing mm. hazard. So so OSHA had to then go back to its more traditional rulemaking. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that, that you know, if OSHA is sued on, the e, on, on their ETS, which is likely to happen, that the courts will rule that this is a, a new hazard that OSHA has to deal with, even though OSHA has experience with infectious disease. And we saw that in actually recently in California. California's ETS for infectious disease COVID, uh, there was a suit filed by some industries and the federal courts upheld Cal OSHA's right to do that. Hmm. So there's some, there's some positive precedents there. Yeah, I think so. so. Yeah. Yeah. But but I'm sorry, but the ETS uh, history, even back in the seventies is, is really mixed. I mean, they're, uh, uh, in 1977, OSHA, OSHA, based on new information about benzene, uh, put out an emergency temporary standard, but was stayed in the courts. And then OSHA had to go through its rulemaking, standard rulemaking process to get that um, uh, to get that accomplished. Um, the same year, they issued an emergency emergency temporary standard against a pesticide called DBCP that was found mm-hmm. to cause sterility in workers. And uh, that was never challenged in court, and so it, 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 it went on to become a permanent standard that still exists. And so, so there's a mixed history in the, in the 70s about the court's uh, rulings over whether OSHA can, how OSHA can use this ETS standard. And, you know, and so it's, it's going to be interesting to see, and we hope, it, you know, hope OSHA is able to use this power to protect workers today. Yeah. I mean, how interesting that it hasn't been tested since 1983. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's yeah. really interesting. Well, what I recall, and this this is based on my memory, it may be faulty, but as I recall, because of the ETS uh, and the court ruling, that that what what happened after that is that when there was a, a real need for a standard that might have met an ETS requirement or a, or a need for a standard that was going to be hard to get through the normal regulatory process or it was going to take 10 or 15 years, that mm-hmm. the, the route that the route that became common to use was to get that to get the requirement for that regulation put into a into a law passed by Congress that ordered OSHA to do that. So the Haswopper standard actually developed that way. It was, there was language in the Superfund um, Authorization uh, Amendments and Reauthorization Act in 1986 that said OSHA will have a Haswopper standard, and it actually spelled out in great detail what that standard would look like. Um, and, hmm. and then we saw the same thing with lead and construction and process safety management, and and uh, uh, and then the bloodborne pathogen standard that came out in the early 90s. Congress didn't do that directly, but there was there was sort of uh, uh, there was sort of resolutions passed on the thinking of Congress that if OSHA didn't come out with one soon, OSHA might be ordered to do it by Congress, and then they passed one. So the sort of congressional <laughs> direct o- direct ordering of OSHA to do things has, I think, has become a, you know, another way to get standards passed. And that was, you know, that was, there were efforts in the summer and the fall in some of the COVID relief bills to actually get a re- uh, such an order into the, into the law that OSHA would be required to come up with a with a, a infectious disease standard for COVID, and you know, but this is the route we're at now. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, anyone who thinks, I mean, I guess I've been doing the been doing compliance stuff long enough that I, you know, one of the gripes I would hear from employers was, "Ugh, how do I keep up with all this safety stuff? It changes so often." And I would kind of laugh. I'm like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, I mean, all of these things take time, right? And and what we're talking about today with an ETS is is you know probably the fastest way um, to uh, to a law that that exists um, for OSHA purposes. Yeah, I, I think if you look back at you know at, at OSHA, especially OSHA health regulations, you know, on average it takes OSHA ten to fifteen years. To successfully yeah. promulgate an OSHA health regulation or update an OSHA standard, you know the the recent silica dust uh, standard update, you know took um, took more than 15 years and actually and actually was was something that was begun at the very earliest beginnings of OSHA almost 50 years ago, and 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 the examples where we see OSHA moving fast on regulations are usually because of an ETS or because of a congressional or a, a you know a congressional yeah. mandate, and there we see regulations. Right that come into place within just a, a two to four years. And so yeah. it's, you know, yeah. it's a, so, you know, and that's not instantly. I mean, even two to four years means there's still public input. There's still uh, a chance for all stakeholders to have a say, and there's a chance for people to get up to speed. And my, and my gosh, with this particular hazard, that's just way too long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, we're already a year into a recognized hazard. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, one of the issues that's, that's got to be difficult for for OSHA for everybody is the 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 aerosol transmittable disease standard in California was came out of experience with tuberculosis in the 90s and then other in, you know H, H1N1 and SARS and uh, other other concerns in uh, before 2009 but that was focused really on healthcare and kind of related uh, work sites. You know, now we're facing the issue of an infectious disease standard that pretty much has to cover everybody because of the unique features right. of 
of COVID with asymptomatic spread and, and uh, you know, trying to control this you know, worldwide pandemic. Yeah, yeah. So, Mark, with your crystal ball out, <laughs> what would you, <laughs> I know, right? Didn't know you had one of those, right? Um, <laughs> what would you, what would you, what would you guess would be some of those items that might be in this, in this ETS, or would you rather not even go to educated guessing? No, I'm, I'm happy to, because I, I think there's some basics here that, you know, that, that, that would have to be in a, in a, in a, in a, minimum OSHA standard. And it would also, they're also the basis of, I think, any, any employer's program that's going to look at this. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, the, the first, the first piece really has to be that, that employers have to do site-specific exposure assessments of their work site. Mm. And, and, and I, you know, and, um, and that's part of the California ATD standard is, is because there are lots of varied sites and sort of unique issues, you know, if you, if you require the employer to do their site assessment, then you're not you're not putting a you know a, a one size fits all plan on it. You're telling the employers here's some guy here's requirements of what you have to look at, but then do your own site assessment, and then mm-hmm. and then based on a site assessment, you you should develop a site specific exposure control plan that would have all mm-hmm. the common elements of training of a of a uh, of an OSHA standard, sort of like the requirement for using the hierarchy of controls, engineering controls. Work practice controls, PPE, uh, worker yeah. training. You know how do you how do you do uh, uh, how do you do uh, uh, how do you identify disease in your worksite? How do you keep track? How do you do contact tracing? Um, mm-hmm. How do you keep records? How do you inform people? Uh, what's the connection to local to local health departments? I mean, all that can be spelled. All that can be sort of outlined in requirements in an OSHA standard and then employers would fill in the details of that based on their on their specific mm-hmm. site. So if I'm a acute care hospital seeing COVID patients, then that plan's gonna be very detailed and, and and extensive. If I'm a work site that's mostly shut down and everyone's working from home, then you know there's a lot less I have to do. Right. Or or and if you're a a grocery store, even less. Yeah. Yeah. So it. So you know. But but the key of that is. Or is, I mean, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say even less different it would be than different, healthcare. Yeah. yeah. Different. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, so the the real issue is what are the hazards to to employees at that worksite, and then yeah. what do you do to control the hazards? So you know, it's uh, and I and I suspect that'll be the uh, that's that's the approach of the of the longstanding OSHA bloodborne pathogen standard that that applies to all work sites, but. You know, it's focused on healthcare, but it applies to our work sites. And I think mm-hmm. there's that's been an incredibly successful standard at reducing bloodborne pathogen diseases among workers. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and OSHA's mm-hmm. had a lot of experience with that. So I think, the you know, I think those would be those would be the couple things I would see that would be in there. I mean, I think one of the things I'd like to see in the standard would be clear language on what an employer uh, policy responsibility would be toward workers who have. Uh, suspected COVID or known COVID, and you know, right. there you know issues of how do you how do you identify those people, and then what do you what do you do in terms of having the, if those people need to be not at work in quarantine, so we're not spreading COVID more. Then, then there should be some responsibility for people to, to be paid uh, to stay at home, whether you know because they're sick through no fault of their own, and. Right. Uh, you know, and 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 in those cases, most states those those folks don't don't fall under workers' comp because you don't fall under workers' comp in most states until you actually get sick. 
So, so while you're in quarantine waiting to see what's going to happen, you're not sick. So it's a sort of gray area that, that often right. uh, uh, I see workers get put in the position of, well, you're, you're supposed to stay home, but we're not going to pay you. Uh, but, you know, we're going to wait and see if you get sick. And, and so, you know, it's a, it's a real struggle for both uh, and, uh, for workers, but also for employers to have policies that support proper infection control and help us shut this virus down. Right. Exactly. You know, and, and some of the, what the things that you're just describing are many of the things that are in the revised guidance document right, right. Um, that we, that we could expect or suspect hope would be in, in an ETS. And then the things that you're talking about right now, you know, regarding some of the worker rights issues that's another thing that was addressed in President Biden's executive order and is really asking OSHA to work um, in concert uh, with um, the Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of Labor, Health and Human Services, you know, to do, to cover some of those things like you're talking about that are gaps, like, you know, with work comp, what do we do if somebody's home, but we're just waiting to find out, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. that there shouldn't be reprisal. And the other thing that's... Um, peppered throughout the uh, executive order and the national emphasis program and the enforcement um, guideline is uh, for OSHA personnel to be paying attention to um, retaliation that could be happening to employees who voice their concerns to their employers or to OSHA about exposures that they have in the workplace and, um, and for the employer to really explain to their employees they have you know, they have a right to voice their concerns and to be free from uh, retaliation as well. Yeah. And that's, that's really emphasized heavily. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a, that's a huge issue in many work sites because, you know, I've always advised that we, that, that to really have a good health and safety program, you really do want to hear from your employees and you want to gain the experience and creativity and ideas of your employees. So if there's, if employees have a either, a real or, or or imagined fear of retaliation if they say anything, then you're not going to get that. Um, and I saw a, I saw a poll or a survey that was put out in the last week or so, I think, by the Ford Foundation and of of employer employee issues in COVID. And I think there was a survey question that showed almost half of employees said they they were concerned about retaliation if they talked about COVID safety and health, which which mm. was really a, a sad you know which which was a sad number. Uh, right. We really do need that. Uh, we really do need that creativity and experience. And, and I've seen this in other in in, in uh, over the years in settings where, you know, you know, good supervisors, good good frontline employees, who really understand what the purpose of the safety program is, like this, like with COVID, can come up with really wonderful ideas that fit their worksite. But but they need to really they really need to feel like they can say something and so that you know so they'll do it. Yeah. yeah. To have that to create that atmosphere in your work environment. Yeah, I remember my yeah. own father who was a mechanic and a pretty much a curmudgeon as a worker, and uh, mm-hmm. I remember he he once uh, submitted a suggestion for making things safer, and and it w- and so it you know not only it was ignored but he was I don't. I, he got some sort of negative feedback and he was like, well, I'll never do that again. And, and, you oh. know, and I was young, just starting off in industrial hygiene. So it was like, Oh no, we want you to, we want you to, we want you to tell us yeah. ideas. 
but it's exactly yeah. it's exactly what we want. Right. But, you know, in in terms of that case, he, you know, the, the employer reaction was such that, he, that I, I know he never, never gave him another idea again. So we really mm. want we really want to encourage in this really difficult time of trying to figure out how to deal with this in work sites of all types. We really want that frontline worker, frontline supervisor experience on how to do this. And then we need to capture that experience by industry somehow uh, during and after this COVID uh, crisis is over and capture that for the future and, and record it and analyze it and then figure out how we do better next time. Because, uh, you know, if we look back at the past 15 years or so, every every five years we're having an infectious disease that affects work sites. You know, we had we didn't have SARS. Canada had SARS. We were lucky. But we had H1N1. We had Ebola. Uh, you know, we had Zika. And, and yeah. now we have this. And, you know, all the infectious disease experts say this is going to be a continuing trend that we're going to have to always be watching for. Right. And so do you think do you think that perhaps what we'll see out of an ETS will cover infectious diseases as a as a as a bigger, broader topic? You know, like you had said before, um, if OSHA is successful in in issuing an ETS, they'll have six months before it either expires or you can turn it into a permanent standard. And so if, if it's if it's done broadly on a topic like infectious disease, um, do, do you think that might be what we would see in this case as well? That, that's, that's my understanding of what OSHA is looking yeah. at, that, they're, they're, that this won't yeah. be written to just be COVID specific. It'll be, but mm-hmm. it'll be specific to, um, you know, to respiratory spread diseases. And so you know, right. that means... To me, that means droplet and airborne spread, or what we what we kind of call, if you lump those together, we call it aerosol spread. Mm-hmm. You know? And so mm-hmm. that's the concern about you know being being indoors in a in a in a enclosed airspace, like most workplaces are, with uh, mm-hmm. where with with not the best ventilation, and you're breathing other people's air. And so that's that's, that's right. the way this disease seems to spread. That's right. Well, I'm so interested to see what they come up with, particularly as it as it relates to aerosols, like you're talking about, I think that um, so many, so many people, you know, whether at work or in their in their personal lives, have thought that the way to protect is to clean. Yeah, yeah. And we've certainly learned that that's um, that's that's not the that's not the uh, that's not the end all be all. It's not the thing. <laughs> but yeah. but what are we doing with that air? Right. I mean, it's it's important. It's important, but it's not the primary piece. Right. And I hope that OSHA in uh, the ETS will make that really clear, because what I see in my work uh, under COVID is is, a, you know, a work site might say, well, you know, uh, we can't we can't improve the ventilation anymore, but we're going to do more hand washing. And, you know, that might sound like, OK, that's a good idea. But if you're, you know, a control, a control for a different route of transmission doesn't help protect workers. And I, and right. I, but I think it's a hard, it's a hard concept of controlling infectious disease for people to get their minds around. And I think it's OSHA needs to really be clear and help people uh, understand that. And I think it's something yeah. the CDC hasn't been as good as I would have hoped they are because you know they're not focused on specific work sites; they're focused on this much broader world. And it'd be better if there was a way to really help employers and employees focus in on, you know, here's the here's a route of transmission, and here's three or four ways we're going to control it. Here's the controls, but it's for a different route of transmission, and they're not interchangeable for the most part. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I hope that, I guess I hope that an ETS would also address things within um, the hierarchy of controls right, right. so that people don't immediately jump to personal protective equipment. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Although, although I think our experience in California with the ATD center is that in the most cases we probably need all the different layers of the hierarchy to be used, uh-huh. but we still really want to emphasize engineering controls and vaccinations as a part right. of that to, to do the best to right. protect people. Yeah. Right. I guess, is that what, is that what people refer to as the Swiss cheese model then <laughs> I think, that we have all these different layers? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think so. But, but again, it layers of control within each route of yeah. transmission. And so again, they're, right. they're not interchangeable. And I think that's been a, that's been something I've come to learn how difficult that is for many work sites to understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Mark, um, Anything else that you've been thinking or reading about um, historically or otherwise that you'd like to share with our audience as we're, as we're waiting for this ETS? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, we've gone through some of the issues with, with, I think, the history of the ETS. It's going to be interesting to see how this, how this uh, turns out in this case and, and adds to the history. Um, yeah. You know, OSHA's had a, um, OSHA's had a, uh, you know, uh, you know, a 30-plus year experience with some levels of disease. And, and, and I was hearing from somebody uh, a, a little while back who was reminding me that when OSHA first thought about the bloodborne pathogen standard, there was a real question as to OSHA even had the legal right or should be um, covering infectious diseases. And, you hmm. know, and so this, you know, the, the idea that that was sort of the, the jurisdiction or realm of CDC. And you know OSHA moved forward on bloodborne pathogen and other issues related to healthcare. So, uh, but it's interesting that historically that you know that was a question in the early days of OSHA as to whether this was something that they should cover. I think the standard's pretty clear about OSHA coverage in this area, where we have you know, where where there are workers and workers exposed to hazards, and OSHA has a role to play. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be interested to see what, how, how the state run agencies react to this as well. As you and I have been talking, I've been thinking about um, my own home state uh, of Minnesota that has a state run program. And um, back in the, hmm, I'm trying to remember what year might've been in the eighties, maybe 83 um, Minnesota's OSHA program started a, a state uh, rule called the um, right to know law. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was to meet or exceed the hazard communication law on the federal level. And so it took all of those pieces of the hazard communication law that have to do with um, hazardous substances and the reasons why we have SDSs and all of, you know, labeling requirements, all of that stuff. But it also additionally addressed, um, infectious agents right i remember that yes and yeah and harmful physical substances and so as an investigator um i would you know i'd be explaining that to people like yeah we have our has come and i'm like yes but in minnesota we also have to do training on infectious agents and so that usually came into play and then they'd say like what's that and i'd say well you know like seasonal influenza um, <laughs> and it also, yeah, right. And it also came into play in, uh, when I would do investigations in like long-term care facilities, um, where they would have transmission of, um, different infectious agents like scabies. That was something that was not right. uncommon in long-term care facilities. And so we would talk about, 
um, education, training, and prevention uh, around that as well. Right. And so I'll be I'll be interested to see what happens in my own state. Yeah. Um, no, that's in that yeah. same regard. It's interesting you bring that up because I was working in the in at that time I was working in Alaska and and, and Alaska had just passed the their version of HASCOM, which applied to chemical hazards. And then there was an effort actually to enlarge the HASCOM standard to add in infectious diseases like you did in Minnesota, because I remember we, we read what you all were doing. Uh, and mm-hmm. then there was an effort to add in um, what was called physical agents, and that actually got adopted in Alaska. So things like mm. heat, cold, radiation, vibration, those sorts of yep. noise uh, to the HASCOM standard. So. Yeah, yeah, that happened in Minnesota as yeah. well. So there's these yeah. interesting, unique, it's it's the unique uh-huh. laboratory of state standards where, where, you know, this idea of doing better than federal OSHA's minimum requirements is a is a place to, to do these things, test them out, and see how they work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think there's great hope for this ETS, and I know that um, the executive order from the president asked for OSHA to make this determination by March 15th, which we're now passed by one day. And I know that uh, the the press secretary from the White House was asked by the press pool yesterday about the ETS and when is it coming? (laughs) And her response was, you know, OSHA is, is is taking its time. It's doing, you know, it's doing the work it needs to, and they'll be ready when they're ready. Yeah. Um, but I suspect, I suspect we'll see something before the month is out. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm optimistic because I think the new leadership at OSHA, you know, OSHA didn't have uh, any, uh, any uh, Senate approved leaders during the entire past administration. And so now we, right. and, and we're still waiting to get the Senate approval, but there are, there are um, acting deputy secretaries. Uh, Jim Frederick is, is sort of the lead, and he's a remarkable health and safety professional. He's been around for more than 25 years and has lots of experience in um, in industrial sites and and working in civil labor management settings. And so Jim Jim and uh, and the other appointees that are there, I think, are going to be a, a wonderful crew and are going to help us through this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they're working, gosh, as fast and. They're working fast right now, and they've done a lot already. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. That's what we need. Yeah. Well, exactly. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast again. Always appreciate it and your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. And thank you all for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution toward the common good, making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you'd like to join the conversation about this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can follow our page and join the Accidental Safety Pro community group on Facebook. If you aren't subscribed and want to hear past or future episodes, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any other podcast player that you'd like. We'd leave it if you we'd love it if you could leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It really helps us connect the show with more and more safety and health professionals. Special thanks to Will Moss, our podcast producer. And until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>